0: way to do this. Let me show you a better way.
1: Hi folks, this is Jack Spearco with another edition of the Survival Podcast. This is always a man's view of the changing world, the changing times and the things that we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is April 12, 2013, and this is episode 1110 of the Survival Podcast, which is kind of cool because that means Monday's episode is going to be 1111. I don't know maybe it's the uh, the lingering Asperger's in me I've always found patterns of numbers cool anyway, what's going to go on today is a listener call show because you know what today is it's Friday Friday, Friday that's right time for your calls to eight six six sixty five think eight six six sixty five think now if you're picking up that phone right now and dial in to uh, to get in, in in the queue so to speak to be on the show, don't just hold off hold off because this is a podcast there's no there's, it's not live all right, so there's no nobody going to answer your call. The way it works is you dial 866-65-THINK, and uh, you'll get a voicemail. It'll be me. And you'll get an opportunity to leave a message. At the end, you'll leave a message, and I think i limit you to about two minutes of time on your message. You're going to ask a question, make a point, point, then you're going to give the details. You're going to do it in that order, or you're probably not going to get through the screening process because I only get about half, maybe 30% of the calls on uh, up on the air, depending on the volume on a weekly basis, so... You need to be brief, concise, to the point. You need to call from a quiet area instead of like you know while you're running a weed eater or on the back of a motorcycle. If you're using a cell phone, you need to make sure you have a few bars, not one or a quarter of a bar, so that you're not like Jack. I was wondering, I because if I get that, I can't use your call. Anyway, you do all that, and you got pretty good odds of being on the air. You call, uh, call once a week for a month. It's almost 100 percent that you're going to eventually get on the air, uh, the way the odds work out if you follow those uh, details. And, uh, I will, uh, have a Friday show every week like this and hopefully get you guys on the air. Today I have that and I have some other things to, uh, to clean up at the beginning of the show. Some really cool announcements coming, uh, which we'll cover as soon as we get done with our regular housekeeping. Housekeeping item one, as always, we're going to take care of our sponsors because, hey, they do a lot to help take care of you. Make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today, Jeff, the Berkey guy, Gleason. Uh, You you know what you're going to get from the Berkey guy? Berkey water filtration systems. Yep, uh, that's what you're going to get from the Berkey guy, but he also has a plethora of other great items for your prepping. You'll find his website at directive21.com. When it comes to uh, water filtration systems, the best in the market, in my opinion is Berkey it's a passive system that works by gravity that means there's nothing to break it doesn't attach to your faucet it stands alone that means you can move it the filters last forever that means it's very inexpensive to run long term and it looks good which means you can put it anywhere and it'll look nice in your home it comes in various sizes so there's one to fit everybody's budget and or spatial limitations but that said you can get Berkey from lots of places so why would you get your Berkey from the Berkey guy? Are you going to be the guy that got your Berkey from the non-Berkey guy when you could have got it from the Berkey guy? Come on. That doesn't make any sense, does it? Seriously, Jeff's been taking care of this audience for a long time. He'll take care of you. Check him out today. The website, again, directive21.com, directive21.com. Next up today, J.M. Bullion, you know... When I let our last silver and gold sponsor go, I was like, i got to find one. I had a list of people that wanted on the show, and I'm like, sorry, guys, i got to have a silver and gold vendor for this audience. I went out, and I searched long and hard to find somebody with two criteria. One, competitive pricing, because I didn't feel the first person had competitive enough pricing. I expect a smaller company to maybe be a little bit more expensive, but I wanted competitive pricing. Two, I wanted a small company. I wanted somebody, if you guys were pissed off because they screwed something up, I could pick the phone up. and call the owner and get a freaking answer now. Um, I found that in JM Bullion. And then on the competitive pricing, gee, they were more competitive than Monex or AppMix, and I don't think their owner wants to talk to me. So check them out today. JamBullion.com. They have some really awesome stuff. When I brought, uh, TSP Mint online, by the way, we are taking orders again at TSP Mint. We're kind of caught up. I think we got the last of the, last of the backlog will be going out this weekend. I just spoke to Will on email about that. And, uh, so you can make orders again at TSP Mint. We have some of the Second Amendment coins. Uh, we have a ton of those in stock now. They're ready to ship. So if you've been waiting to order some Second Amendment coins, uh, check those out. Remember, they're only $1.99 over spot for MSB members, and they're $2.99 over spot for everybody else. But when I brought that online, people were like, well, what about JM? I mean, are they going to still be around? Of course they're still going to be around. I sell custom-minted AOCS medallions. JM Bullion sells everything else. If you want silver eagles, pre-64 coins, generic bars, generic rounds, gold, that's the place to get it, jmbullion.com. Check them out. Absolutely outstanding people. In any line of business, there's going to be hiccups. I've seen a few with them. They've always made it right. They've always taken care of people. Check them out today again, jmbullion.com. Next up, I want to remind you about the Member Support Brigade. Hey, you know JM Bullion gives you a discount if you're an MSB member? Hey, you know that um, uh, the Berkey guy gives you a discount if you're an MSB member? Hey, I give you a discount if you're an MSB member. Isn't that cool? and there 's thirty seven other vendors that give you discounts as an MSB member, so check out the member support Brigade today. The way to find out about it go to the survivalpodcast click on members and you can sign up there in a variety of ways it 's how we pay the bills around here. Basically, you support the show for eighteen point three cents an episode, and if you 're buying stuff in the self sufficiency world, you get your money back many times over it 's a value added product that I put together because people wanted to help support the show but I wanted the show to be a business, not charity. Military, law enforcement, Peace Corps, active duty and prior service, along with first responders like paramedics, EMTs, and firefighters. I do offer you a service discount. To claim that, send me an email, com. service discount in the subject line, and then tell me who you are and what you're doing or who you are and what you did, and I'll get a discount code back to you. Do that before, not after you join. Okay, so I wanted to talk to you guys today about... A, a, a couple things that are kind of cool, and one thing that's kind of not cool. I'll start out with the fact that I put out a blog post yesterday uh, about a uh, a video coming out. Uh, tomorrow, I think, is actually the release day by Jeff Lawton that's going to be the next video in his free video series. These videos are in, in the neighborhood of 30 minutes long. They're amazingly well produced. They're absolutely beautifully done, uh, and they're incredibly information rich. If you guys remember the first video that came out uh, about three, four months ago, it was toward the end of last year. Uh, that was on food forest establishment using chickens. It was like I knew it was going to be like a, a video, like a free video thing, to, uh, just to kind of start building some momentum for some things he's working on. And I expected it to be a ten minute video. It was a thirty four minute video, and it's amazing. The next video is coming out. I'll tell you about that in a minute and, and some other things are going on with Jeff uh, and trying to get some things squared away for the eventual workshop we've talked about. That's going to be way out in the future at this point, but we're going to try to do it and some other things going on with Jeff being on the show. Um, but somebody made a comment on the blog today, and I don't want you to take this wrong. I'm a big boy. I'm not you know, sitting here sobbing in my Cheerios or something like that, but this actually is kind of hurtful. in in my view when I hear something like this and I'll explain to you why after I read this guy's comment so I put out a post yesterday with the teaser video for the new video which is going to be over 30 minutes again uh, and links to how you could watch the old video if you've not seen it yet or rewatch it if you wanted to and how you could get on an alert list so that you would know as soon as the new video is ready because of something else that's going to happen that's why I wanted you to know as soon as possible so you could participate in what I'll tell you about in a second but this is Scott H Comment and this comment disgusts me. Scott H doesn't disgust me. The comment and the insinuation disgusts me. Nothing more than an affiliate email harvesting scheme. Disappointing at best. Give away your email to watch a promotional video. I used a junk email for this, obviously, and it has been getting blown up by spam ever since. Thanks for that. Just some advice for users. Don't use your normal email for this junk. Give them an email that you don't use every day. That way Jeff can sell your email list and Jack can get his click-through affiliate kickbacks and no one misses out on watching this long commercial. Okay, the two videos are not commercials, Scott H., they're incredibly information-rich. Uh, they're nothing like a commercial, and that's just ego and attitude. But here's what probably happened. Scott H. probably created his fake email address and then used it multiple times and then wondered why he got a bunch of spam to it. Um, many other people responded to this saying, hey, I've signed up for that email, and I never got crap from anybody. Got one video or one email in between now and then that was relevant to what was going on, and that was it. Here's the thing. This is why this disgusts me. I have busted my ass for almost five years now, building this show and building the loyalty of this audience. I have always put this audience first, and I always will. When I look out my window at the life that I have today, I realize 100% that everything that I have is directly attributed to the people that listen to this show, and I watch over you guys. Now, I can't watch over it in your daily lives, but anything that comes through the Jack Spirico filter has to get through the filter to get to you. Occasionally, I give you a piece of information that ends up being incorrect. I come back and tell you I was wrong, and I'm sorry. Because I'm human, I'm gonna screw up. But something like this, this is my world. I know, I know online marketing. It's what I did for 10 years before I launched TSP. That I did for large corporations. I did, for, did this crap for people like Donald frickin' Trump, okay? So I know what I'm doing and I know the hallmarks of what other people are doing. Okay, Jeff Lawton isn't selling your freaking email address, Scott H., and I wouldn't work with him, no matter who he is, if he did, and I find it downright insulting, downright insulting that anybody would insinuate such a thing. As for the kickbacks, this is important that you guys know this. It's not just me ranting. I want you to know about kickbacks and affiliate links and anything that's conducted with me and any third party. I do not make a freaking time from kickbacks or referral fees or anything like that i actually don't see any problem with anybody else doing it that's part of why you build an online business so you can leverage it and say hey this is a good product go buy it and you earn a referral commission i don't do it though one, so that people like Scott H. can be sold to, to shove his head up his butt and blow real hard and see if his ears pop, okay? That's, that's one reason I do it, so that I can head crap off like this because I knew I would get accused of it. There's a bigger reason, though. My business model is simple. I negotiate deals for the segment of the audience that supports my show financially. I negotiate the very best deals that I can. And that means that if somebody comes to me and says, hey, we'll give you a 15% commission... On you know selling our product, and I think it's a good product, and I think you guys should should have access to it. And I say, well, I got this discount program, and they say, well, we give you a fifteen percent commission, give your people a ten percent discount. That I'm screwing you guys out of fifteen percent in your discount because my business model is selling access to the discounts. That's what the MSB is. So my response is always this: Well, if you can do that, then you can afford twenty five percent discount to my members, or whatever the two numbers add up to. Or if they say, well, we do fifteen percent in affiliates. Can you give it to my, can you give it to my audience? And they either say yes, and I say great, we can talk about putting you in the MSB, here's the criteria, do you guys want in? And we do that. Or they say no, and I say, well, I don't do that. Sorry. Well, can we buy advertising? Sorry, I'm sold out. That's how I conduct, I want this audience to know how I conduct business. It's part, it's the transparency is part of the integrity. It's not a sales pitch, guys. I'm not trying to pitch you on the MSB today. You either want it or you don't. But I believe the transparency in business is a piece of integrity missing in society today. And my thing is, okay, I'm independent. I can tell you to screw off, and if you want to complain to the owner, you just did, and you were told to screw off. That comes with a certain level of responsibility, though, that means that if you don't deserve that, you get 100% the best treatment possible. I built this so that I could be one person in charge of everything. And if anybody didn't like it, they could go screw. But on the other hand, the people that did like what I was doing would always feel that I would listen and I would fix things whenever it was humanly possible. Part of that, in addition to is I wanted never for anything that's being done on my side of the microphone that you can't see to ever not be, to not have you be able to see how it works or know how it works. So that's how the MSB works, and that's why I don't take affiliate commissions. At some point, Jeff is going to sell something to all of the people that are watching his videos because, like all of us, gee, he needs to pay the bills, okay? right? And you can only do so much production for free, and if you want it to be sustainable, which in permaculture you would, you actually have to make money. On that note, when Jeff came to me, I was offered... You know, when we eventually sell something, you can have a commission. I told Jeff the same thing that I told everybody else and pre-negotiated at any point that he begins to offer anything for sale to the people in this, 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 this area is a large discount for all MSB members. And I take nothing, Scott H. I take nothing, not a dime. That's how I run my business. I don't even, if you guys look, The next time you see me put up a link in an episode to a product on Amazon, I don't even put Amazon affiliate links in anymore. There's some old ones I don't bother to take off the site. I don't even run Amazon affiliate links. I don't run anything as an affiliate at all anymore because what I'm trying to do with the business side of TSP is always whatever's available, negotiate it, for the people that support the show. And that's, I think, unique, and that's, I think, different. And I'm sorry to rant a little bit today, but I want, you know, I've said this before, but people that are new to this show, I want you to know the integrity that it's run with. It may not be run the way you would do it. You may not agree with it, but nothing will be hidden from you. All will be disclosed to you, and I will always keep my word. And that's the best that I can do. And if that's not good enough, Scott H., it's called the back arrow or the, the X button, and I'm sorry you feel that way. But it seems like some people feel that anything that's successful must be a scam. Let me tell you something about email addresses. No person running a business with half a brain ever sells their email addresses, ever. Your database is everything to your business in the online world, everything. It's your customer base only a dumbass sells their customer base to a competitor for the pennies that you would get. And if you want to collect email addresses to sell them, there's far easier ways to collect a 100,000 emails a day than go through producing 30-minute videos that are information-rich and beautifully produced in order to do it. So I'm done on that. On the good side, uh, Jeff does have this new video come out coming out. It's going to be specifically on selecting a site and figuring out the best place to set up your survival retreat, basically, and permaculture it into an abundant food production system. Uh, It's going to be amazing. An email did go out today that I worked with Jeff to put together that was basically supposed to go out after the, the, the new video launched, and it looked like his guy sent it out before the new video launched, so I apologize for any confusion there. But if you're on the list, you'll get the update as soon as the new video is available. Sunday at 3 p.m., I'm interviewing Jeff Lawton uh, for the Monday episode of TSP. And we're going to have Jeff on to talk about his new video and some other things. This is what I've done for the audience in spite of what Scott H. thinks. um, I have set this up so that you guys can now watch the new video, send me an email with question for Jeff in it, Please make it relevant to the second video, not the first video. I've got some today already, and obviously since the new video is out, they're not relevant to the second video. I will give priority to anything relevant to the second video. If there's time, I will draw from the rest of the questions that come up. So you can see generic questions or questions in regard to the first video. Just know I'm going to give priority to people to ask questions that are uh, relevant to the second video. So you watch that video when it comes out. And you have until 2 p.m. Central Time Sunday to get me an email so that I'm prepared for my interview at 3, 3, 3 o'clock p.m. on a Sunday with Jeff Lawton. So I'm taking my Sunday and interviewing Jeff to get this together for you and have it for you on Monday morning. So Jeff Lawton will be on the Survival Podcast. Um, the next thing I have is totally unrelated to Jeff, but definitely related to permaculture. Uh, I am going to be in Montana again this year, this time in July, which is probably a good time to go to Montana, um, for a workshop with Dave Jackie, who is the author of the, uh, the food forest books or forest gardening books. This will be, um, right now it looks like it's going to be July 9th through 14th. Uh, there's several different packages for this. There, one's a five day, uh, thing where you're working on two sides of the design. This is not going to be, a, a practical application. This is going to be 100% design. There's a 1.5 or one acre food forest being put in uh, at a community in, in Helena, Montana. And Dave Jackie, who is you know one of the foremost experts on creating forest gardens, is going to be running it. And those that are doing the five days are actually going to have their their name, their fingerprint on the final design that's being delivered. This is akin to what was done in Seattle, except this is being done in Montana. So this is basically the second thing like this being done in the United States. Uh, what we're going to leave the people with is the design, and what we're going to leave with is our fingerprints on the design and being actively involved and working with Dave and working with other folks up there. This is going to be a complete analysis, rainfall, plant types, all those types of things. I'll put a link in it for you guys today. There's uh, several different packages. One is a three-day uh, which is already sold out. One is a five-day, which uh, which still has some seats remaining available. One is a two-and-a-half-day, which has some seats remaining available. And I talked to the, the person running it, and she is going to look at seeing if maybe they can fit some more seats into this. Um, but I will put a link to Inside Edge Design in the show notes today where you can learn about uh, doing this. This is going to be a public edible forest park. Uh, designed for the citizenry around Helena, Montana. It's going to be awesome. Um, by b- participating in the five-day, and I'm not being paid to promote this. I actually am paying to go, and I'm actually making a donation to them toward a scholarship fund so that one person that, that really deserves to go and wants to go but can't afford it can go. Um, so just so you know how I'm participating in this. But I'm going to be there. I'd love to see others of you guys there. Again, it's going to be July 9th through 14th in the Helena, Montana area. I'll put a link to information about it today. And I'm going to have um, the the organizer of the event on the show for you on Tuesday morning. Her name is Jessica Peterson, and she is putting this together. And I, I want you to know something about Jessica. Jessica was at the Sep Holzer seminar that I went to last year. Uh, I don't think we got to speak maybe briefly, and neither one of us are sure it really happened. Uh, but she listened to my critique of that event uh, twice, she told me. And they're taking many of my suggestions to make sure that their workshop goes better, uh, including they're having me go over a pre-attendee survey to make sure that people attending know what they're getting into, that the expectations are understood on the other side so that there's a good match. So that if somebody thinks they're going to get A and they're actually going to get Z, they can be told that's not what – here's what it's really going to be. Are you sure you still want to come, that type of thing, uh, and that everybody is taken care of and looked after properly. And she very much agreed with my critique of the Holter Seminar. Uh, and that shows, to me, a huge commitment to taking care of people that are spending their money and time. Because uh, getting to Helena, Montana, you know, you're pretty much, if you live in a place like I do, that, that's far away. You're pretty much eating a day on either side of the event. So five days become seven. So it's a serious commitment for serious students. But I'd love to see some of you guys up in Helena, and I wanted you to know about that. And uh, with that, let's finally, 20 minutes into it, get to your first call.
2: Hi, Jack. I had a question about deep mulching gardens. Now, what about plants that self-seed? Because in the Back to Eden videos, talks about how broadcasting seed on deep mulch might not be such a great idea. Any thoughts on this? Thanks.
1: Uh, that's a great question. There's two different ways we can handle that, and they're both pretty simple. And one is not everything everywhere that we grow has to be in a garden bed in deep mulch. So if you have something that readily reseeds, there is always the opportunity to create areas around trees and things like that that make, you know, cutting grass and things easier instead of getting right up against the tree. Uh, that maybe aren't necessarily deep moats that are so intensively planted with things like you're talking about. And a great herb to do this with, for instance, would be parsley because there's so much seed and it, it just constantly reseeds. And once you get it thick, almost nothing can compete, compete with it. And you can have it since it's a biannual and it's, it's, uh, you know, in one area, you can have parsley that's in first year and usable, but for cuttings and usable as an herb and in second year, which really grows high in seeds and brings in insects. So there's ways you can do that, and you can do that with anything. I do you know, that with things like lamb quarters and amaranth, and if they'll just show up somewhere, I just let them grow. And if they show up somewhere and it's where grass is, let us cut around them when I cut the grass, you know, and now we'll have to figure out how to keep chickens from taking out some of the stuff that we want to grow as we encourage that. And as you do more and more cultivation on your land, You'll have more and more sporadic volunteer self-reseeding in all kinds of places, including in your deep mulch. But I get the question. Let's say you have a particular plant that's really good at self-reseeding. It's an annual, but it reseeds so well that it behaves like a perennial, uh, or a biannual that performs like a perennial, which was parsley would be another good example of that and many other things. So all you do is you keep an eye on your plant. Okay. And when your plant that reseeds is getting to a point where you know it's going to seed and then the seeds, the heads are starting to dry and it's starting to drop seeds, you just pull back the mulch from around it and you wait until it's done with its deal and you push the mulch back. It's that simple. If you want to speed things up, what you do, like basil's a great reseeder. So how I do basil is, okay, so you yank your basil plant out because I'm going to dry it now because it's done in steel. It's got a big dry sea head head across it. And I'm going to hang it up, let it dry out, crumble it up, and put it into jars so that it can be given away or used at home. We grow so much of it, we give a lot of it away. Fresh basil versus the crap you get on the store shelves. So when you do that, you just strip off those seeds and kind of rub them in your hands and break the cases a little bit. Pull back the mulch in the area where you want basil, throw the seeds down, and throw the mulch back on top of it. And you'll get some will come up right away, and some of it will winter over, and nature knows what it's doing, and as Seth Holzer says, trust nature. And in that case, that's what you do. You will still get things that will work their way to the bottom of your mulch. See, mulch eliminates most weeds, not all weeds. So mulch also eliminates most reseeding, not all reseeding, which isn't necessarily a problem. And I do things too, like, you know, let's see if we can get a volunteer pepper. This pepper's got sun scald, and it's a little past its prime, and let's just stick it under the mulch and let it decompose. Well, some of those seeds may come up next year. They may not. I don't know. We'll see. But basically, that's the big thing. is just pull the mulch back at the time that the plant's going to seed. Uh, return the mulch uh, after it's gone to seed or after you've done it for the plant and rock on with life. And also encourage those types of plants generally are very hardy and they don't always need the pampering that comes with being in a bed-based system as well. Great question, though. Well, let's take another call.
3: Hi, Jack. Alan in Tennessee here. had a question about using railroad ties as fence posts. Um, was wondering what your concerns or thoughts were on the creosote uh, being in the garden area. Uh, I've heard you discuss several times things such as pressure-treated wood on raised beds and oh, just different things that have a fairly small impact, you, you believe. And then uh, on one of your last call-in episodes, I heard you speaking about dyed mulch and a concern with having that on your property. So I was just wondering where you stood on that. Love the show. Listen all the time. Really appreciate all the information you put out.
1: Thanks. Okay, let's talk a little bit about the comments that I made about the mulch. My concern was taking a dyed mulch and putting it into a bed that you were going to eat the food out of. I'd prefer that it not be used anywhere, mainly because I don't know what's used to dye mulch. And generally, dyed mulch is not... Considered, let's say, a food product. It's not something that's generally marketed to people to use in a vegetable garden. It's an ornamental product. And because of that, it, it, you know, given that you can get contamination in products that are marketed to gardeners, a product that's not even marketed to a gardener, I don't trust. I've said that I don't have a problem with landscaping timbers. And the primary preservative used in them is copper. And there's enough research and enough information known that to know that if you build a raised bed and you use landscape timbers, that you really don't have a problem. Those they're not treated with creosote. Uh, they're, they're treated with a product called CCA, which stands for chromium copper arsenate. So it's chromate, chromated copper, and arsenic. Right. So that's the one that scares people is the arsenic. Well, there's been enough. Um, you know let's say experimentation done to determine that the amount of arsenic that accumulates in the soil if you use these things is very low and in fact it decreases over time the way you would expect that it would, and that we need to understand that arsenic is a natural element that exists in our soils already, and the le- you know the, the the minor degree of elevation that may or may not occur when you use these timbers is so insignificant that it's not worth concerning ourselves about and because they're affordable and long-lasting they're a great material for building raised beds if you want a boxed in raised bed i've kind of gone away from boxing things in realizing it's just an expense and another component that i don't need and it's simplified to simply make a mounded raised bed without anything holding the raised part of the bed together because well If you pile dirt up, it pretty much stays there, especially if you do it right and do it on contour. Now, a railroad tie. This is a totally different thing. Now we're talking about creosote. And some of the ones that I'm dismantling right now, when I dismantle them, the way the guy built these beds that he built using them, he put down a layer of cinder blocks and then put some scrap wood in the gaps in the cinder blocks to hold the dirt in and then went across the top of them with railroad ties. When I pull these ties up, it looks like in some cases where they were newer ties that somebody dumped tar onto the cinder blocks below them. It's a level of weepage that's far in excess of anything a landscape timber is going to do. Uh, Lots of people use them for ornamental purposes. I don't want them for anything. I'm giving them all to my neighbor behind me. If I was that concerned that if they were anywhere near my property, it would be the, you know, the the end of all, I would not have offered them to my neighbor because he's going to put them right along my back fence. Right. So I don't think they're like some tremendous environmental hazard, but I'm not going to go through all the trouble to grow my own food and then turn around and surround it with something that leaches this tar-like creosote crap into the very soil that I'm growing with. So I don't want them for that purpose, but I don't mind them being nearby. So would I use them for a fence post? I don't see any reason not to. Uh, they would be a very robust, long-lasting fence post. My, my thing about that is, are you asking about railroad ties or are you asking about landscape timbers? Because... Railroad Ties are many hundreds of pounds. They're very big. They're very heavy. I mean, if you're putting in like an industrial badass fence, I mean, yeah, I guess they would work. But, I mean, you're talking about an 8-foot long. Um, I um Most of them are around a f- 10 to 12 inches by about 6. They're like a 10 by 6 or 10 by 4 dimension. They're huge. Uh, and they would be a lot of work to get in the ground vertical for fence posts. So it depends on what you're asking. If you're asking about using railroad ties, I don't think they're very practical, but I wouldn't have like some huge environmental concern because the action of this stuff is very limited in ranges to where it's going to go to. And every telephone pole and telegraph pole that runs across the sides of your property is coated with this crap anyway. And if you walk old railroad tracks, there's plenty of stuff growing around them. They're not ending the environment or anything. But I wouldn't surround my food with it. If you're talking about landscaping timbers, I wouldn't even worry about it. Um, I'll put up a North Carolina State University study on landscape timbers uh, in the, looking at the difference in arsenic concentration in seven-year-old tilled beds and two-year-old untilled beds, and you'll see that the, the levels are just so insignificant, um, that, you know, your average soil that's unamended probably has the same amount of arsenic in it. Anyway, that's, uh, it's a good question, and hopefully I got the gist of it and got your answer right. Let's take another one.
0: Hi, Jack. I have a question about tree routine raised garden beds. My suburban lot is surrounded by various types of trees, which I can't do anything about because they live on other people's property uh, and some of them on town property. I do trim them as much as I can because they also add too much shade for my taste, but that's all I can do about them. I can't take them out or anything else. Nor do I want to, really. The problem I'm running into is that these trees send very vigorous roots into my garden beds every year. Um, And this brings up two questions. First, is this a problem? I'm thinking that it is because these tree roots will be sapping nutrients from the my gardens, and the roots seem to be competing with the vegetables. Um, these uh, tree roots send up this mat, basically, inside the, the soil, making it very hard for the vegetables to get really decent roots. For example, I have a really hard time growing root vegetables. They seem to get, you know, clumped up and, and then stopped by them. Um, so I have to dig them out every year. Uh, the second problem question is how do I stop them? Um, I've tried lining the beds with weed barrier, and that didn't work. Uh, I tried lining line them with the weed barrier and plastic tarps perforated for drainage, and of course the trees find the drainage holes, so that doesn't work. Um, I'm not really even happy about the idea of the plastic tarps anyway, because I have no idea why they're leaching into the soil. So, short of growing my gardening in bathtubs, what can I do about this? Thanks, Jack, and looking forward to your answer.
1: Actually, at the end, when you said short of, you've kind of given yourself the answer. I wouldn't use bathtubs, though. Um, I would take up, in your situation, something that's been referred to much, mostly in Australia as tank gardening. And uh, I would I would hop my happy butt down to a place like Tractor Supply. And I would pick out really cool stainless steel, corrugated steel tanks. Not stainless steel, so corrugated steel tanks um, of appropriate sizes and shapes. It would look really good in a design. And I would set those systems up as my raised beds. I would look probably for mostly tanks that are in the two-foot depth range. I would layer on the bottom of them rough material, almost like you're doing compost. Uh, From there, I would go to a good soil mixture uh, and and load it up from there and do a deep mulch of about four inches on top of that. And I would just keep adding to it. They come with these nice little drain holes uh, so that you can just open that up. You might want to lay down a layer of thick, heavy gravel at the very bottom to encourage drainage uh, so it doesn't become a waterlogged system, and I would garden like that. And that is not my ideal personal way to garden, but I do want you to understand that you're not giving up that much. There's a lot of volume in a two-foot-deep tank. A lot. And because of that, Nature's gonna colonize it just like it's in the ground. You'll end up with worms and all kinds of stuff in there. Um, and, and if you keep adding organic material, that will continue. I people say, How does a worm get in there? And and my answer is if you're doing soil amendments and composting, all oh, some eggs get in there and it goes on. But there's more to it than that. It's just the nature figures things out. This is really interesting. Go find a good two year or older um well managed aquaponics system, and start digging into the gravel in the in the gravel the flush gravel bed, and you start finding these huge worms in the. He's like, how do they get in there? And I remember uh, Murray Hallam, who's do, also in Australia, that's done a lot of work with aquaponics, saying, I really don't know, because he says we get them sometimes. We have systems that are completely inside a greenhouse or a greenhouse, and and we're not bringing anything like a garden amendment in because it would screw the system up. But yet they end up there, whether it comes in through eggs that are in feed and pass through the fish or whatever, but they end up in there. So nature will find a way, because there's almost nothing that you can do without putting down a truly heavy barrier that will prevent those tree roots in your situation from getting in there. And they are a problem. They're absolutely a problem if you're trying to grow, especially like annual crops, annual vegetables, herbs, and things like that. Um, They're going to limit what you can do. It, it's it's not like forest gardening or something because you have these trees that are spaced yet not spaced and it, it's not set up as an ecosystem and you, you have no control over your neighbor's trees. So pruning to let light in and having filtered sunlight, you might actually have an incredible garden, but I would go to tank gardening. And I would say that a lot of people in suburban areas, that's, it's a really great idea. It's a really great thing to consider. And if you want to see an example of this, then jeff lawton's urban permaculture dvd has a lady that does a beautiful job with it and she does a seaweed mixture for her fertilizer and i mean her garden is great. i'm like i'm not in love with it but when i watch that dvd i'm like i want to do it. i don't ever do it but i'm like i want to do that it looks awesome um and you know they don't have to stay stainless steel they can be painted they can have designs you can put pathways between them um and i've seen a lot of places especially it seems like australia is really embraced the concept of doing tank gardening, um, and I've, so I've seen a lot of it in, in a Zone 1 permaculture designs done over there. I've seen it done with the big 2-foot uh, by 8-foot round tanks. I don't like that because I can't reach the middle of an 8-foot tank, uh, so I like more of the oval-shaped ones if I was going to do it. If I was going to do a round one, I would maybe stick to like a 6-foot round uh, thing and maybe even put some step stones so I could step into it and get to the back. Uh, but there's a lot of advantages. If it's two feet high, that's you know, and you're four, you know, four, to, four to, I'm sorry, not four foot tall kids are four foot tall. But let's say you're a five foot six inch, five, six foot tall guy, and it's two feet tall. You only have to bend four feet down instead of you know six feet to the ground to to work with it. You've got a nice flat surface, um, and you have complete control over the soil. Um, so that's what I would personally do in your situation. Not bathtubs, but tanks. I can't really give you another solution that doesn't involve removing at least some of the trees. It sounds like your density is too high if you have that level. And if you have high nutrient-rich irrigated soil and a big old red elm or something, like a red bud or an elm tree or something like that, one lot over, and it has roots to reach out that far, as soon as it's under there, it's going to be like, oh, yum, and it's going to go up. And it's There's very little you can do to stop mature tree roots like that. Uh, from getting into an annual system. Uh, that's why when we do tree plantings around our gardens, we tend to stick to, at least in that highly managed area, dwarf, semi-dwarf, and bush and shrubs, because they're much easier to control, and generally you can keep the root system consistent with the drip line of the crown of the tree. Anyway, good question. Let's take another one.
2: Hey, Jack, this is Jake in Minnesota. My question is, how would you stick it to a negative Nelly neighbor on the gardening topic. Here's the context. I just moved into a new house. It's, uh, we've got about an acre and, you know, I'm really eager to apply everything I've learned after two years of listening to your show and grow some of my own food. Unfortunately, the soil is not great. It's gravelly. The next door neighbor says, Jake, I hope I hate to uh, discourage you, but uh, you're not going to grow anything in this yard. And, uh, you know what, my desire is to just really prove him wrong. I mean, I right know it's not about food production anymore. It's about, uh, uh, you know, showing a guy who wants to shoot down a young, a young, excited guy that, you know what, you can't do this. So I, I've, I've just, I'm so overwhelmed with all the ideas I've had from your show over the years. And what would you do if you had, uh, I mean, we've got two young children, so we've got limited time got a wife who's not interested in the gardening thing at all and so it's just me we got a couple hours a week and you know what would you do how would you establish those beds uh what what would you do with the limit with that limited amount of of time so that we can have some success and not get super discouraged i look forward to hearing your hearing your advice and uh thanks again for the show we just i love it you've uh You've been a big part of my life
1: for the last few years here. Thanks for everything. Um, a couple things there. Well, honestly, the first thing that I would consider putting in would be raised beds. And if you look at my videos on contour-based, hugel style beds, that's what I would do. And there's a couple cool things about that. One, it will make your neighbor even more convinced that you're crazy and don't know what you're doing. And two, it will work really good. Um, it's going to take time. It makes a lot of sense for you to, let's say you wanted to put in 200 feet of beds this year and you only have a limited amount of time, to put in like 40 and do a really good job with them. I mean, that's that's what I would do. So I would put in some sort of raised beds, whether you do a conventional, rectangular, flat-shaped bed. And there's some advantages to beds like that when you're managing plants that want to be staked up and things like that, especially as you're going through a learning curve. And I want to pause right now because I've meant to say this like four times. There's a ton of gardening questions in the first part of today's show. I didn't plan it that way. It's just how they came in. It's the time of the year. So if you think it's the gardening show today, it kind of is. And I guess it's it's spring, and that's that's a lot of what's going to be happening. So that's what I would do. Um. I would start looking at you know major uh, improvements to the land, swales and landforms and things like that. Um, but I would go slow at first. I would try to focus on your zone one first. I would start putting in trees and shrubs and bushes close to the home. I wouldn't try to use all of the acre or so yet. I would start and I would with each place that I did that. Sorry for this disruption. It was uh, it was uh, Rob Gray from AOCs. I, I took the call real quick and I'm back. Um, guys, here's here's the deal. What I was talking about was you know doing these raised beds and then starting to focus on trees, bushes, and things like that. Perennial plantings, fruits, uh, berries, and things like that, planted very close to the property, uh, to the house. The zone one design. So this is going to be some maybe some garden beds, some pathways, some walking spaces with close planted perennial long-term things that can be heavily mulched, planted into that na- native soil but heavily mulched, planted with support species around it, and the big thing is because it's close to the house it's it's easy to irrigate. And because those plantings during this time with you have limited time to really get the design right and you're still learning, Irrigation and and organic fertilization and heavy mulch and those will do well. So now and then you've got your garden beds going a few of them and you've got you and don't put your garden like 500 miles from your house. Put it as close to your house as logistically makes sense and make sure you can irrigate. Even if you're doing culture contour based, especially the first year, you're going to want to irrigate, especially with gravelly soil. And gravelly soil can be beautiful and it can be terrible. It all depends. I haven't seen your soil, so I don't know. But on the other side of this, the sticking it to them, let me explain something, guys. Most of you would be very, very happy if I had the time to come to your house and say, here's how to do everything. Here's how I would put – here's where i put the beds. Here's where I'd plant these trees. Here's how I'd set up irrigation. Here's where you don't need irrigation. Here's what you do. Here's how to use the land." Like you would see me as like an expert consultant, and I think that I'm probably not as good of an expert consultant as most of you think, but I think I'm pretty good, and I do know what I'm doing. I don't put myself at the level of Jeff Lawton or Dave Jackie. That's why I want to learn from them. But I think I'm I'm a good apprentice to to that level. Most of the people that see me around my property don't know me that way. They know I have this show and they don't really take the time to listen to it. They're in their own world. And they see me cutting trees down that are dead and, and instead of putting them on the wood pile, putting them into the ground and digging a trench. They think I'm nuts. Okay, They see me out before a storm instead of you know putting buckets over my plants because I know it's not going to freeze and not really care if I get a little bit of hail damage. Out in my pasture spreading the seed mixture of a 100 different seeds and laying down rotted hay on top of it to capitalize on the water that's coming. They think I'm nuts. They, they have the same attitude that you're dealing with. And as you start to do things differently, and this is the truth about anything, not just gardening and permaculture, when you do stuff differently from the status quo... You're always looked at as not knowing what you're doing and being naive. Well, that might have worked there, but it won't work here. And when I, when I moved permanently for a while to the Arkansas area, and I started doing these things there, I had this pile of rotted wood that we gathered in the forest. Stacked up six feet high, you know, eight feet wide, 20 feet long, waiting for Sean to come out and bury it in these beds. And when I was done, the beds looked like any other bed, but people saw us go through all that. They saw me digging these trenches, stacking these rock walls on contour, explaining contour to people 15 times and still going, they're going, well, I don't understand that. What do you mean you don't understand level? You understand that your floor's level in your house? Yeah. That's, and they, just because they didn't want to understand it. Because it couldn't possibly... They all their own way they were doing things, which is the way everybody did things. And you were looked at as being a little off and naive. Even though, basically, this is my life. This is what I do. So then the the growth happens. And then everybody that lives in this little neighborhood we have there is coming by. How do you do that? Well, you watched me do it for a year. You You know exactly how I did it. But now we have to ask the question, is it can't have been what I saw you do? The way you stick it... To, to people that tell you it doesn't work because you don't worry about them. And and don't be spiteful. But I understand the motivation is you do it. You just do it. And don't tell them what you're doing and don't try to drag them along and don't say, wait till you see what happens because things often go wrong. And then it's the whole gloat. Ah, See, I told you that wouldn't work. It reminds me of my dad. When I first moved back to Pennsylvania for a few years, I took a job working for a company called Microtest, and I had to use the Internet daily. And this is when the Internet was very, very young, and it was hard to get DSL in a lot of areas, and my dad would never have DSL. I had dial-up Internet that I was using during my transition, and I stayed at his house um, for maybe a couple weeks during this transitional period until I bought my house and got my family moved up there. And I was on the Internet every day to do my job and using AOL. And I picked a a dial-up number that looked local, but it turned out to not be local. And he ended up with like, you know, the regional phone charges you used to get, like a bill for like 80 bucks, which I paid. It was no big, it's like business expense, dad. Don't worry about it. Here, here's 80 bucks. Here's a hundred. Shut up about it, you know? And his thing was, I told you you're going to get a big bill from that internet one day. He was convinced, he was convinced it was that it was the internet. Not the dial-up number. I'm like, listen, if somebody lived at the number and you called them as often as I used it, you'd get a bill for the calls, right? Yep. But that's what happened. not it's that damn internet. I told, see, and because I had, I had tried to explain it to him to a degree he didn't want to know, he's still convinced today that it's that damn internet that made that big phone bill, right? So. <laughs> If you, if you, and it's my dad, and you're gonna have, you know, relationships like that with parents, right? Because they always, it's called powdered butt syndrome. If they powdered your butt when you were a baby, you can't be smarter than them, no matter what. You, you could go to MIT, you know. I remember when I got out of the army, I was changing his starter for him on his car, and he's telling me how to do it, and I'm like, "Dad, I just spent three years as a mechanic in the army, and it didn't matter to him. You're still his kid, you know." But you don't want to create that dynamic with a neighbor. So if you start telling a neighbor how smart you are and how everything they're doing is wrong and how they'll see one day, they'll take every opportunity to, to point out what failed. If they don't even know what you're doing, they don't know what failed. All they know is what succeeded, and it's going to take you a year or two to build that up. But I would start out with close plantings, heavy mulch for perennial plantings, bushes, trubs, trees, things like that, semi-dwarf stuff. Keep it pruned down into the 8-foot range, 8-10-foot uh, to 10 foot high range. Uh, that type of thing is where I would start out. And I would start doing a lot of thinking. I'd rock your, walk your property every day. Where would I put swales? And I'd build an A-frame level, and I'd go out there with flags and put them in the ground and just look at the contours and start to understand the land and things like that. And and then they'll really think you're crazy. Because I did, when I was out with my laser level driving stakes in the ground, and then one day I just went and pulled them all back up because I figured out what I needed to know, they really don't know what's going on. But every time I'm out there working and one of the neighbors from one of the three sides comes by and sees what I'm doing, they're giving me the same – they're not as direct with it, right, because there's already results. I just posted a thing yesterday with, like, this whole crap ton of broccoli that we grew in 60 days. So there's already results, so they can only say so much, but yet it just doesn't feel right. And anybody that's involved with this is going to deal with it. And it's not really sticking it to them, but the results kind of do stick it to them. So – just stay true to the to the, the the theory and the practice, and keep working, and keep your head down, and, and do the work, and don't don't try to explain it to anybody with a closed mind because they're not going to listen anyway. There's an old saying: uh, a person convinced against their will is of the same opinion still, and it definitely applies to permaculture and natural landscaping. Let's take another call.
3: Hey Jack, this is Jake up here in Middle Tennessee, also known as Prepper Survivor on Zello. Got a question about square foot gardening. Um, will the plant's roots penetrate below the six inches of the bed if you're using plastic landscape fabric? Um I built mine like Melbourne uh suggested square foot gardening, a box, cover it with landscape fabric, staple it, flip it over, put his soil mix in right on top of your grass. You don't have any problem with weeds, et cetera, but you've only got six inches of soil to work with. Now, I know that uh, eventually the grass will die and, and compost, but will that landscape fabric eventually break down? And the reason I ask this question is I'm concerned about the roots. Uh, according to Steve Solomon of, of a book I just read, Gardening When It Counts, Growing Food in Hard Times, he is totally opposed to square foot gardening and calls it intensive gardening. Intensive Overdo it, and um, when the plants are that close together, they don't they don't produce a, a nutrient density dense um, produce. Uh, they don't their roots are confined, etc. And it makes a lot of sense in that regard when you compare it to a row garden that you have space between the garden. It holds more water. The plants can uh, propagate their root systems better. But I'm just concerned. I don't have the ability to do that. And am I giving up? Uh, nutrients and production by putting my plants too close together like t- tomato plants are, are a square apart. Should I allow them uh, extra squares and just sacrifice some of my growing space or, or am I really arguing a point that doesn't need to be argued? And will the roots eventually go down below that uh, landscape fabric year over year? Alright, sounds good. Thanks. Appreciate the show. Enjoy it. Keep up
1: the great work. As a former square foot gardener, um, I agree and disagree with the Solomon's uh, thoughts on it. It, it. It's all in the, the whole concept of it depends. And in some areas, he's completely right. And, and I'll tell you where. And it's in the density of planting. Not with tomatoes. Uh, a one-foot square area per tomato plant on a four-foot bed, a four-foot by four-foot bed, a, a, a conventional small uh, square foot garden bed, and four by eight is another common size, but a four by four. With a four-foot trellis built onto uh, the you know the uh, the north side, so the tomatoes that grow higher can catch the sun and not shade out the rest of the bed. Is going to have four tomato plants across the back of it, and it will do just fine. And if you do it the way Mel Bartholomew says, and use um your you know your uh, what they call the electrical conduit to build your uh, to build your your trellis, and then do the trellis in with landscaping netting or what do you call that? Plant netting. It'll work just fine. There's plenty of room there. When you start looking at some of the other planting densities, 16 carats, uh into a square, uh, four heads of lettuce into a square, I, I had very poor results following his densities, and I went more to a square to a plant for most plants, and it, it worked pretty well. Now, beets and carrots, you could do at maybe six uh, to a square and do quite well. As far as the roots getting in with each other, there's no problem there. Uh, one thing that Solomon probably doesn't get is that square foot gardening is designed to be an intensive polyculture. So even what I described as four tomatoes across the back, you'd probably do something more like two tomatoes and two other plants that are tall, uh, across your back. And then your, your plants out to the front of them would be various different plants. Maybe some peppers next because they get relatively tall. And then maybe some lower growing plants toward your, your, your more, you know, solar exposed side of the thing as you work your way out. And all of those interactions of the roots are actually part of why there is so much success with square foot gardening. But yeah, the densities I've had an issue with. Your underlayment in your beds, um, it will deteriorate, break down, and by the time it does, the soil underneath will be in much better shape for those roots to penetrate, and they will begin to penetrate. I've never used landscape uh, cloth to do that with, though. I don't like it. It doesn't make sense to me when there's so much freaking cardboard laying around and the cardboard breaks down within six months, and it does a better job, in my opinion. Uh, so if I were going to do square foot gardening today and I was worried about putting a, per- a barrier down, I would use cardboard, and it will do a very good job of keeping things c- from coming up. But in a good watered bed, within even a, a month, roots are going to start penetrating through down. Um, and, yes, they'll reach down there. And there's a lot of... Uh, especially mineral nutrient, not so much fertility, but mineral nutrient down there. Now, the other side of, of, of you know Mel's, you know, using Mel's mix and mi- mixing your own soil is a lot of the concerns that Solomon would have about um, nutrients and fertility into small areas like that um, are, are minimized because you're talking about a mixture that's a third compost. It's a third. It's a third freaking compost. Uh, there's plenty of nutrient availability there. And, it, and if you're doing a mulch on top of that and you're continuously adding mulch, you're going to be fine. But the planting densities, that's where I'm in agreement. The planting densities are out of whack. I have never had and – I, and I have amazing results with the gardening that I've done over the years you guys have seen. With the densities that Steve is talking about – or not Steve, that Mel is talking about in his book, No. I, I, four spinach plants in a square. I mean, if you're growing them as like, you know, um, like French salad greens or something where they're small, you can do more than that. But if you're going to grow a full plant that you're going to cut and come again, or take the leaves off the outside, the spinach plant will take up a foot. A broccoli plant will take up a foot. A, you know, so here's my view. You don't have to be married to any of this. If you're building a four foot by four foot bed or a four foot by eight foot bed, you don't have to plant a square. You can plant your, your separation distances, whatever works for you. And here's the interesting thing. You can plant densities that are too dense. And if you start to notice there's too much competition, just cut one of the plants out. That, that's how you deal with it. And, and pick the plant that's not doing as well and just cut that plant out. If you got two tomato plants that are really just crowded for space. Which one's doing better? Cut the other one out. Prune it back. Um, and, and, and then you'll know, well, next year that's that's the density I'm going to plant with. And the other thing you can do with high-density planting is plant short-season crops next to long-season crops. By the time the long-season crop is really taking up space, the short-season crop is harvested. Uh, we have a bunch of broccoli right now that we just harvested. It's starting to set up side shoots. I'm about to put beans in with it. There's no way that the beans and the broccoli will fit in the same space. But by the end of this month, I'm going to be going through there and cutting all the broccoli down, the beans will be happy. So that's another way to utilize spaces with secession planning. But when you start looking at, well, is Steve Solomon right? Is Mel Bartholomew right? The reality is that everybody that's in this industry is married to their methods. And my belief is that the best approach is not to have any of them, one of them be like, you know, your leader, that they're all people that have done work that have had different results with that work. And then you adapt their techniques into your environment on what is best for you. But, I would say don't think just because you're building square-raised beds that you have to do square-foot gardening or square-foot planting densities. But when you start reading the planting densities of beets and carrots and lettuce and things like that, throw that crap out. It's just it's just not accurate, and it doesn't work well, and it doesn't produce well. And that's where I think if you're reading Solomon's book, he's probably – I haven't read the book, so I don't know uh, on that particular one, but you're probably dead on right uh, to, to to follow his advice about changing the planting densities with some things. Uh, particularly when I tried a planting density, I did a corn area, uh, area for corn. And what Mel says is four corn plants to a square. I got abysmal results. It was way too dense. I'm, it just didn't work well. Now, on if you need depth for something like carrots or something or potatoes or, or what have you, what Mel suggests you do is build a, a one-square-foot or two-square-foot box, whatever area you want to plant them in, that's about six inches high, and set that on top and then fill that up and plant into that to get your depth. And, and I guess that would work. But I think square foot gardening works well for some things but not all things. I mean, that's that's really the way that I look at it. And I've gone to more of a polyculture, whatever seems to work, over-plant, remove uh, concept now. And, and that is directly following uh, watching the work of Jeff Lawton. And and I just think it's a better solution. Um and I would row garden today, or polyculture garden the way I do before I would I would uh, I would square foot garden. And I say this again as a person that did it for a couple of years, tested it, found it to be useful, but nowhere near as good as you know. If you want to do intensive, learn about French bio intensive gardening. It's it's a, a staggered row gardening, and that's going to probably be far more productive uh, than than square foot gardening. I think square foot gardening is a great way to get started. The great way to learn what works for you, and if if you do it and it always works, and all the planting densities work, that's fine. But I and many others have found them to be overly optimistic. Let's take another call. Hey, Jack. This is Jason in Coastal Georgia. Jason three eighty nine on the forums. Uh,
3: my question is: Is it considered uh, cheating to use malorganite or pelletized chicken poops uh, for organic gardening? I don't mean our uh, organic to be certified by the government, but I just mean if I've made a commitment to not use chemical fertilizers in my garden, uh, is it okay to use milorganite? I'm already using compost and mulch. Uh, so that's my question. Love the show. Keep up the great work. Thanks a lot.
1: Well, with any kind of a poultry manure product, I, I don't have much of an issue with it. I, I have not found just about any poultry manure product to be something that ever seems to cause any kind of, um, Herbicide residue contamination, where you start to see uh, the, you know, effects of, let's say, uh, a, a compost with a persistent herbicide in it, as you often find uh, from cow manure, from from fields that have been sprayed with things like 2,4-D or, or, or you know, other herbicides. And I don't know why, because many of these chickens are being fed corn and soy that is GMO and from you know Roundup Ready fields. But because they're mainly being fed the, the grain portion, I guess the concentrations are lower and maybe the way a chicken processes this stuff are lower. So I have a slight concern with that. And I would say that if you're going to use poultry manure product, I would go ahead and get a, an organic product because there's a lot of it out there and, uh, it, it would minimize those concerns. Miracle Grow, uh, in particular makes a, a poultry based dry um, organic, uh, product. And I know some people say, well, who, Miracle Grow is, is owned by Scotts and Scotts is owned by Monsanto. No, they're not. They're two separate companies. They're not, own, neither party owns the other. They do have some dealings with each other. But I believe that the best way to send a message to a company that, you know, you want things to be natural and organic is buy their natural and organic products and don't buy their other products and stop making shit up, guys, by the way. By the way, those of you that are making shit up like, Miracle Grow is owned by Monsanto. Stop making crap up. I mean, seriously. It it bugs the shit out of me. I did one video where I mentioned Miracle Grow and, and there was a billion comments. It's Monsanto. It's Monsanto. You even say, look, here's the ticker symbol for Scott's on the Dow and here's the ticker symbol for Monsanto. They're both wholly owned comp- They're still owned by- Just stop making shit up. Anyway, I would go with an organic poultry based product just because it's not that much more expensive. Uh, I don't consider either one cheating. Now, malorganite. I was like, what the hell is malorganite? And I don't have the same warm fuzzy about malorganite as I do, uh, about, uh, poultry manure based products. Let me read you what malorganite actually is. Malorganite is the trademark of a biosolids fertilizer. Okay, let me translate biosolids fertilizer. Sewage. Okay, you flush the toilet in a metropolitan area and your crap goes down into a tank. And when it gets to the other end, instead of calling it crap, they call it biosolid. All right, so now we know what that is. Produced by a Milwaukee metropolitan sewage district, which confirms that biosolids are in fact sewage. The district captures wastewater from the metropolitan Milwaukee area, including local industries. What are they washing into their sewers? The water is then treated at the Jones Island Reclamation Facility in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, with microbes to digest nutrients that are found in it. Cleaned water is then returned to Lake Michigan. The resulting microbes are then dried at temperatures ranging from 900 to 1200 degrees Fahrenheit. Surviving pathogens are unlikely, and daily tests confirm the absence of pathogens. Notice it doesn't say herbicide or chemicals or things like drugs because of the amount of drugs that are flushed into our sewer system. The malorganite program is one of the world's largest recycling efforts. The low-impact formulation was designed to recycle valuable nutrients for use on turf and gardens, reducing the need for manufactured nutrients or mined minerals for fertilization. Milorganite contains virtually no salts, so it never burns plants, even in the hottest temperatures and driest conditions. You don't have to water it in. It will stay in the soil, ready to work when moisture comes later. Each application feeds for 8 to 10 weeks, resulting in fewer applications. Heat-dried biosolids contain slow release organic nitrogen, largely water insoluble phosphorus bound with iron and aluminum and high organic matter. Melorganite releases 85% of its nitrogen slowly as your turf grows, generating balanced growth. By the way, this is all on Wikipedia, it's not a, uh, a, a brochure. Melorganite is 4 percent Melorganite's 4% iron enhances the color of turf. Uh, through 8 to 10 weeks. In other words, this is starting to sound more and more like something you put on grass. And I think if you were going to put it on a grass lawn and you really didn't have a plan to grow food, it would probably be okay. And whatever level of residual gunk might be in there would probably be okay. Um, I would be very cautious about using this stuff in gardening. And I, I would say that a way to test it would be to get yourself a couple containers... And two things that are generally heavily impacted by any kind of re- residual gick um, would be, number one, uh, beans and legumes, and number two, tomatoes. Tomatoes tend to get this really curled leaf, you know it when you see it, response when any kind of contaminated compost or, or thing is introduced that has a residual herbicide in it. And I would then take the malorganite and use it in a container where I can contain the gick and test it on both legumes and tomatoes in a container. And if you get a negative result, that would probably be a good indicator that there's residual gick in there. And because it comes from so, such a large amount, the problem is you don't know if, if this bag tests okay that the next bag is. So you kind of in this, like, if you want to try this stuff, I would be testing every bag, at least a sample out of it, and then that means I have to test it this year and use it next year uh, kind of thing. I, I just wouldn't do it. Um, I like the idea. The fact that it's sewage isn't what bothers me. The fact that we're recycling human manure, basically, and and, and and urine, is not what bothers me. It's all the other things that go into our sewage system that bother me. It's the fact that you know you have all types of 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 things that are being used in our food system that are passing through humans that that are in there. Um, it's the it's the fact that some of this is coming from in, industry. Um, that much of it may be runoff uh, versus true sewage. I I just think that there's a there's a concern there. Um, so it's not that I think it's cheating. It's that I have a concern over the product. Now maybe this product is being used by people that are growing tons of tomatoes and beans. And in that case, if that's the case, and somebody can show me where that's happening, I I am very much a fan of what's going on here. I just, with so much coming out about these residual elements and things like that, and then hearing the word industry, Milwaukee metropolitan industries are dumping crap that's going into the sewer system and being made into a fertilizer. It concerns me on using it on crops that are for human consumption, but I will say that I could be wrong. I just have a concern. So those are my thoughts on your question. Let's take another one.
2: Jack eric from long island with a what if question what if you woke up tomorrow found yourself living in the socialist state of new york and you had short-term plans to move but could not get out before the new gun laws took effect would you register your guns that are now considered evil and sell your high-capacity magazines for me it makes my skin crawl the very thought of it want your input jack love what you do thanks
1: Easy one. I would not give up my guns, but I would not do it in a stupid way that might turn me into a felon and get me in deep shit. Um, if I just had high cap mags and that was the only thing that were really considered evil in New York and uh, I, I wanted to uh to, to deal with that issue... I, I might sell those, cause there's still a little bit of a premium, premium on them now, though that premium's coming down, and then just buy new ones after I moved. I might do that, I'm, you know, what have you. Uh, if I knew where I was moving, I would, I would secure secure storage, and I would take a trip, and I would take all my guns that New York requires to be registered, and all my stuff that they consider evil, and I would go put it in that secure storage, and I would lock it up in there, and I would pay the bill, and then when I moved, I would go get my stuff. And I would not give up or sell my equipment. That's what I would do. I mean, if you're saying short term, if you're talking 10 years, it's not maybe the viable solution. Would I register my guns if I was a short timer? Let's say a short timer is anything under six months. Hell no. But I would get anything they require me to register out of the state into secured storage in the state that I was going to. And I'd make damn sure I picked a state where that is okay. Uh, and I would probably want an indoor a uh, climate-controlled facility that's okay with firearms being stored, and I might have to pay more for that. That's option A. Option B is if you have a good friend or family member that you trust, go buy yourself a gun locker, put it in their facility, and store your guns in their home. Uh, that would be another option. And then you have a locker and your guns waiting for you after you get your move done. But the state of New York could very well kiss my hairy ass if I accidentally waked up there. Uh, I'm telling you right now, I I know I'm big on the walking to freedom push, but what what New York is doing and several other states are doing with firearms, I would have my ass on the way out of any of those states right now um, because you are being oppressed and you don't have to be. And and there should be a consequence to these states that are doing this stuff. And they should know, and please write a goodbye letter. Get involved with Walking to Freedom, but please write a goodbye letter. Send it to your local township officials. Send it to your governor. Send it to your attorney general. Send it to everybody involved in this crap and say, I'm leaving. I'm taking my freaking money and my guns with me, and you can kiss my ass. I'm not coming back. And I'm telling you, there 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 needs to be a line in the sand here. And it, it's now the line in the sand has now been not crossed. They wiped the, the line away. They said, the line doesn't exist anymore. Screw it. Well, then that's fine. You can choke on it. I'm taking my property tax dollars. I'm taking my money. I'm taking my job. I'm taking my skills. I'm taking my family. And I'm out of here. And I, I know that some of you are going, I a family. I, have fr- I know. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But at some point, I just feel you've been infringed upon enough. And New York has turned law-abiding citizens who have never violated the law, who have never even had a speeding ticket, into potential felons overnight because they don't respect the right of these individuals to protect themselves and to own arms that are protected by our Constitution. And New York doesn't deserve you New York doesn't deserve you. New York, you do not deserve the loyalty of the citizens you have freaking shit on. That's all it comes down to. Leave. Even if you have to go to Pennsylvania, which isn't great, get out of New York, get out of New Jersey, get out of Connecticut, get out of Maryland, get out of California, and get out of Illinois. Those states do not respect your rights. They do not respect your rights. They do not deserve you. They do not deserve your talent. They do not deserve your time, and they damn sure do not deserve your money. That's what I would do. I would get my guns out ahead of time, and I'd have them waiting for me when I got where I was going. If you can't, I don't even know, because I don't even care. Do you know what New York's law is? I don't even care. It's so far past what's reasonable, I don't even care. But if you wanted to have one gun for home protection, I might keep that one, the least offensive to the New York law that's most capable of at least doing what I need done, there and register that one. I don't know if you have to register a shotgun or a rifle in New York now. I don't know. If you do, I might keep one or two of those. I get the rest of them out of the state. And once they're out of the state, it's not New York's business. It's not New York's business. It's not New York's business. They don't need to know. And again, I would be gone short-term would become immediately hyper-short-term. I don't care if I had to live in a one-bedroom apartment pile my family into it. If the state has crapped on your right that much, they're not entitled to you anymore. They don't deserve you anymore, and they're not worthy of you anymore. That's what I think. Thanks for asking. Let's take another call.
3: Hey, Jack, it's John in West Virginia. Again, I was wanting to ask you about... I'm the kind of fence in my yard to keep my dogs in. Uh, It's not really within my budget to buy a fence right now. But I was thinking about some hedges, something along those lines. Maybe even some bamboo. Just just see what you might think. All right, appreciate it, man.
1: Well, hedging is an option. Um, It's just going to take time. And it's not going to be really a lot cheaper up front than than doing regular fencing, uh, so to speak. I mean if you start looking at driving some T posts in the ground and throwing up some four foot, you know, uh like horse fencing or something like that, you know, you're it's not a lot of money really to put in a couple hundred feet of fence. Uh and if you need a smaller area for your dogs even than that, just to kind of keep them around when you're not directly looking, you're 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 talking, you know, four or five hundred bucks, you could fence in a few hundred square feet pretty easy. Um, so the the hedging is really more of a long-term play that has a lot of benefits and requires very little maintenance. A couple things that spring to mind that would do very good hedging uh, up in your area in West Virginia, uh, one would be hazelnuts. If you plant hazelnuts now and put them about four feet apart... And then start as they start suckering, start retransplanting suckers and things like that, and extending it. You can put in a pretty tight uh, hazel net uh, uh, hedge that'll produce a a pretty valuable crop for you. And once you get them up to about three feet and they tie in together, they'll do a pretty decent job keeping your dogs in. I would pair that uh, with Rosa Ragusa, which are the old style English roses that get the great big hips that are so wonderful for so many things with big thorns on them. But that's going to take time. I have a solution for you though, uh, John. And by the way, let me say when I when I clicked on your email and I clicked on the the attached call, I was like, oh god, he's still there because I've been missing you, brother. I mean, you became a staple in the show. Please call back more often because I just love hearing you. Um, and, and you haven't been around for a long time, so I'm glad you're back. But Paul Ween did a video a while ago that I immediately thought of when I got this, and it was a lady that built a fence on her little ranch. Uh, that keeps in hogs and goats. And if it keeps hogs and goats in, unless your dogs can jump 42 inches, and some can, uh, there's dogs that they'll go over a, a 40 inch fence, and, and which is, I think most pallets are like 44 or 42 inches wide. Um, you, he, they were built out of pallets. And it was basically one pallet long ways, one pallet short ways, one pallet long way, one pallet short way. And they were just nailed together. And they'd been there for years. And I'll put a link to the video so you can look at it. But if you just start picking up pallets, you could probably get enough to build a fence with for free in almost no time at all. It can be competitive. My father is a pallet recycler. That's his business now. He's got Jack's Pallets, you know, and I told him you should call it Pallet Jack's. But anyway, uh, he goes around to all different places. He's got relationships formed over a decade now where they put pallets aside for him. A lot of them need a little bit of work. Some of them are almost brand new, but there's Dozens and dozens of places he has set up. So if there's a couple people operating, he's even told me there's some kind of, you know, animosity between almost like fishing guides fight over clients, like who's going to have access to these pallets and new guys have a hard time getting in. So it's kind of its own little version of a cutthroat business over a business where you make a dollar a pallet profit. Um, but you can usually find some places where you can get some, you know, just ask. And uh, once you get enough of them, and even if it's got a broken board or two, well, you get three pallets and you end up with two by recycling some materials. It's exactly what my dad does, and a lot of them are oak and hardwood. And you take those, and the stuff that you can't use for recycling, you've got a good fuel wood. And uh, you just keep kind of building that up. And I think that would be... If you wanted a good, solid, long-lasting fence for the least amount of money you could possibly spend, I think building it out of pallets would be awesome. And I'll include a link to Paul Wheaton's video today on just that for you. And, John, thanks for calling. We've been missing you around here, brother. Uh, Let's take another call. Jack,
2: is silver and gold jewelry a viable alternative to silver or gold coins for um, savings in the fact that my wife does not like the idea of buying coins, they just sit there, but she likes jewelry. And I'm thinking I could do this. Yes, I do take a bigger hit because you're pay for all the craftsmanship, but I was wondering if it worked. Also, I do understand the 14, 18, 16, 24 karat gold part, but I don't understand silver when it relates to jewelry, um, i.e. silver versus sterling silver. Could you help me out with that? Love your show. Thank you very much.
0: See ya. This is Gene from Florida.
1: Is it viable? Well, on gold, it definitely is. Fernando Aguirre said flat out that he's seen barter done with gold in Argentina, where a guy'll take a chain. The guy looks at it, and in a barter, when you start bartering silver and gold, people snap to what's real and what's not real quick. And basically the, the 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 transaction was uh smaller than the entire chain so the guy wanted like five links of the chain so the dude takes the chain lays it on the ground takes a knife hits it with the back of his hand cuts one of the links and hands him you know the five links plus the cut link and they made their deal so it does work it does happen it does not have the ease of recognition and certifiable pureness that's that coins do. And I would still try to put a little bit of coin away, especially with silver. I mean you're talking, you know, thirty to thirty five bucks a coin depending on market price on a given day right now. Um it's not that much money to put some of that away and have that, you know, known quantity, mint mark, or some pre sixty four or actually pre sixty five coin. Or something like that, because it's identifiable and its ease and its known weight and purity is is the big reason it's more transferable. If you're gonna do it with jewelry, it's probably smarter to stick to gold and stick to gold that's not jewel base. Here's the thing: if you get a gold ring and it's a high carat gold, that gold has that intrinsic value. Absolutely. If there's a diamond or a tanzanite or a ruby or an emerald in it. There's a very subjective value to gems, and it's generally not something that holds well. And the person – and there's there's a fixed value of certain gems by cut, quality, clarity, all of that stuff. But the requirements to verify it and to be able to say, you know, look at it and look for inclusions in a diamond and things like that are a lot higher than the qualifications to say, well, this is gold. Okay? So – You want If you're going to put jewelry away for a store of value, you want the value to be based on the metallic content. And if, yeah, your wife lets you do it because there's a tanzanite in it, fine. But understand that the barter value is in the gold. And even if you get into a point where you have to barter it or sell it, you might want to open the facet, remove the stone, and sell the gold, if that makes sense. Silver. There's pretty much two types of silver jewelry. Plated, which is crap and worthless, and sterling. Sterling is an alloy. It's 92.5 percent silver and 7.5 percent uh, other materials, and that's generally copper in most sterling. So it's a copper silver alloy. Uh, so if you have a a one ounce uh, silver ring that's sterling, and it usually will be marked either sterling or point, or 92.5 on it. Uh, and there's some other sterling marks, you can just look up sterling marks on jewelry and you'll find all the marks that are considered acceptable, Um, then you don't have an ounce of silver. You have, you know, uh, basically .925 ounces of silver. Okay, so in a lot of ways, it's kind of like, Close to what the value of a U.S. pre sixty four coin is, right? You have ninety percent silver, ten percent copper, so it's a little bit more silver. And with the price of silver, you're splitting hairs on on, on basically an ounce. So um, you can look at it this way: you've got 90% silver is is kind of the easy calculation that will probably be made in a barter situation with silver jewelry if it can be verified. And there's actually a lot of utility to buying sterling silver jewelry, especially at shop uh, swap meets and and uh yard sales and stuff like that. That's one good way you can do it. You something you can do. Um, to not kind of tip your hand at, like, swap meets and stuff. And swap meets less and flea markets less than garage sales. Garage sales, you can often get a lot of great deals on silver, is things like, you know, you can kind of weigh a couple nickels and know about how much three nickels weigh or two nickels weigh or things like that. And when you're holding a ring and you found the .925 market, you're pretty convinced it's silver. Uh, and you, you, you know, you just have your nickels in your hand and your, your ring in the other hand, you start to kind of get a feel for what the weight of it is. And then you can make a reasonable under the market value offer and you can pick up a lot of good deals that way. So that's one good way to pick up silver. Um, but I would not try to have hundred percent of my store of precious metal. In jewelry, because you are paying a premium and you 're going to sell at a discount or you 're going to barter at a discount so you 're getting it it 's not just you 're paying more for it you 're going to get less of a premium for it when you sell it in a barter market now if it 's really beautiful jewelry, you can sell it at a premium to a degree if you want to sell it fast and easy and simple you're always going to end up selling on the metallic value of it. We buy gold signs and all. That's what they're paying for. Us. And they're paying significantly under market because what most of those places are doing is selling it off as basically junk, silver, and gold and having it melted down and put into a new form. So there you go. Um, that's, that's kind of the, the ins and outs. So that one, let's take another call.
4: Hi, Jack. This is Darlene in Ohio. We appreciate your program immensely and have a question that we think you might be able to uh, help us out with. We've taken your advice on producing rabbits for a source of protein and have just begun that endeavor of breeding the uh, set of rabbits that we have. Uh, however, we were having problems with uh, looking for a good source of uh, knives. We don't have the time to... Uh, build our own knife with the knife kits, as you've mentioned on the uh, the air, but uh, what what brand of knife uh, or knives would you uh, recommend for small animal slaughter, such as chickens, rabbits, and turkeys as well? So if you could help us out with, with a, a good set of knives that would help us with that project, we would greatly appreciate it. Uh, another sidebar to uh, my questions is, I've been hearing you mention about the stock market and that, and I was just wanting to hear your feedback on what you thought about the uh, New York Stock Exchange being sold um, back, uh, well, when the Sandy Hook uh, tragedy took place, that's when the sale took place, and it was sold to ICE, or Intercontinental Exchange, uh, which now runs our stock exchange. Uh, No longer is it owned uh, by U.S., uh, uh People but uh, it's now a global exchange and I've noticed ever since that happened that there was a a sharp increase in the uh, stock market uh closing values and until here most recently but uh seemed to take a direct uh, uh increase uh, which I would assume is being propped up by an international uh, market so uh if you could uh Give me some feedback on what your thoughts are on that and and how that is feeding into uh, the comments that you've been making here lately. Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Uh, look forward to hearing your reply. Uh, you don't have to put this on the air. Just answer the questions. Thank you. Bye-bye.
1: Talking about doing a good job of cheating and getting two completely unrelated questions in, let's start out with uh, dispatching animals in the worm. I would say that you would be hard-pressed um for a good utility knife that once it's kinda of beat up and worn out and you just want to get another knife uh, for a value uh then, uh then the mora. Uh the mora is made with Swedish steel. Uh the carbon steel blades sharpen very, very easily on a steel. They come nice and sharp and if you get you got it using a sharpening steel, it just please remember this about your knives. It's always easier to keep a knife sharp than to sharpen a dull knife. Keeping a knife sharp is easy, especially as you're doing butchering and stuff. As soon as it just starts to not really go through that hide or not really go through that meat the way that it was when you started out, wipe it off, hit the steel with it three or four times on both sides and go back to it. That knife will stay like a razor almost indefinitely if you don't let it get dull. So more, but the reality is any, any sharp knife. When you're looking at dispatching chickens, for instance, the key is you want a sharp knife, and the way that, I'm the biggest fan of dispatching chickens. I've seen people do it in their hands, and I don't, I like going straight to the what you call a killing cone. Uh, and basically it's a cone, you take the bird, you hold them upside down, and they just kind of almost immediately start to calm down. And you give them a little bit of time like that, you put them into the cone, and you take the blade, and you don't want to cut into... The, uh, the the bone, like in any, or even into the trachea where you're going to cause the animal to uh, not be able to breathe. You basically cut the jugular and the carotid on both sides and just let it hang and it bleeds out. And it's interesting when you do it that if you do it with a really sharp knife, there's no reaction when you make the cuts. And the bird will just hang there and bleed. And only at the very end, when almost all the blood's bled out, will they start to kind of do the death kick and things like that. With rabbits, you're looking at the best way to dispatch rabbits is with cervical dislocation. Um, again, more is a great knife for doing the butchering on a rabbit. and But again, any decent sharp knife. Uh, but I like carbon steel for this because it's so easy to restore the edge before we actually get to a dull state with a steel. You can do it with a stainless steel knife, but it just... If you start practicing with a sharpening steel and you keep a knife sharp and you, you start realizing how easy that carbon steel blade just comes back for you the, the second you hit it on there. Um, another good knife, though, that is in the stainless variety, uh, Cutco. I'm a I'm a big fan of Cutco knives. Uh, Patrick Rohrman, who made my neck knife for me, and I'm about to buy another knife from him, and I love his laminated steel knives, but they're expensive, doesn't like Cutco. Cutco's not a cheap knife, but, boy, it's a, it's a it's really a good knife. I just, uh, I just skinned out three, skinned and butchered three hogs with a Cutco butcher knife and a Cutco chef's knife and I had great results. So for larger animals, Cutco especially is probably a good, like, mid-price knife. But any good sharp knife. But with rabbit cervical dislocation, there's a device, I can't remember what it's called, that's made for doing this with rabbits. You basically bolt it to a, a wall or a sturdy post or something like that. You put the rabbit in. And you grab his legs and give him a yank, and you dislocate the C2, 3, C two, C two and C three vertebrae when you do that, and death is instantaneous. There's some kicking and writhing, but it's, it's done. The animal is out. Uh, there's no way for the brain now to communicate with the body, and there's no pain for the animal. It's pain free. Is, is you know, let's call it what it is. It's a slaughter can be. Um, I am not a fan of, of doing uh, throat slitting with rabbits. There's a real risk of being bit or scratched, and it it doesn't work the way it does for poultry. I don't keep rabbits right now. Eventually, I'm going to. It's probably a next year project. This thing with main things we have going on. We did keep rabbits for a while when I was a kid. More accurately, my grandparents did. And my grandmother was a fan of cervical dislocation using a broomstick. Uh, it's the same way Marjorie does her rabbits. She basically lay the rabbit down on its stomach. You put the broomstick across its neck. You kneel on it. You grab the back legs and you yank. Whenever I was asked to dispatch a rabbit, I had an old Benjamin Sheridan 22 caliber pellet gun. I'd throw about eight pumps in it, put a pellet in it, take the rabbit out of his hutch, sit him on the ground, I'd let him start nibbling some clover, and while he nibbled the clover, right in the back of the head, right where the head joins the neck, it's the same effect. It's a cervical dislocation. Never knew it was coming and never had that experience of being put into this confined space. Because mammals to me have a, they don't calm when you're doing it the way that the poultry tend to. On larger poultry, Turkey and geese specifically. I have found that I am uncomfortable with the amount of time it takes for them to expire from a neck cutting, from just slitting and bleeding out. I have found that both are better flat-out decapitated, hatchet or machete. Uh, and that usually is a two-person operation. Uh, and I would not hesitate to, again, deploy the pellet gun, cranial shot, and then immediately hang the animal and then go ahead and cut allow bleed out. Uh, you get a better bleed out if you slit a throat while the animal is still alive. There's no doubt about that but I don't think it's sufficient to warrant the time it takes for a larger animal like a goose or a turkey to expire. I'm just not comfortable with it after having seen it done. I've never done it. I will never do it. But I don't have any animosity towards you if you choose that. But again, my, my go-to knife for this type of thing is the Mora uh Carbon Steel uh knife. And uh specifically the Mora uh Swedish classic number one. They come with a red handle. They're very identifiable to people that know them. Uh and to give you an idea of the price on these things, fifteen ninety-nine. dollars So I it's it's just really a great knife. Uh at, at sixteen bucks I mean, and I'll put a link to the, the knife on Amazon for you guys. To say, oh, great, you know what? And you'll notice there's no affiliate link there. Anyway, um, <laughs> from earlier in the show, I didn't even think of that till now. But anyway, so, so the Mora, I think, is a great knife for your needs. But when it comes to animal slaughter, think about the fact that there's not a one-size-fits-all to this, Uh that we shouldn't baby dispatch a rabbit and a chicken the same way. And I want to talk to people that maybe when you listen to this, this was hard to listen to and hard to think about doing. I understand that. Um, I'm looking at my chickens out my window right now and thinking some of you guys are not going to see August and they're not. I've got, I've got like six rooster faomi, six faomi roosters. They'll kill each other if I don't take some of them out, uh, within a couple months here as they, as they start to mature. And I'll have to select one who gets to stay and the other, the other five gotta go. I mean, they just gotta go. Uh, They're not going to last, and even the sixth one, I don't know if Faomis are going to be what I want to keep as kind of the the alternative to my layers as as a bird to propagate for meat. I just figured it was different, and I would try it, so they might all go. Um, But I don't have a huge concern over doing it, but yet I do have an understanding, because as a hunter, I've always felt that I've earned the life that I've taken, that every deer that I've ever killed, every feral hog I've ever killed, every squirrel I've ever taken out of a tree with a 22, every animal whose life I've ever taken in the wild, I did so in a way where the animal had a chance for escape, and the animal didn't trust me. Killing an animal that trusts you that'll eat from your hand is different, but I also look at it this way. I think about a chicken that I would go buy in a store that lived for 38 days in a cramped, confined, dark space sitting in its own manure with no beak because its beak was burned off, so it didn't take the eyes out of the chicken to its left and right, that was picked up and slammed into a truck while it went down the highway being crapped on by the chicken above it, that was treated like nothing but a commodity, with no quality of life whatsoever. And I think, well, my chickens are going to get 60, 80, 90 days of really high-quality life. My long-term birds are going to get years of high-quality life before they start stop laying and get called out and when i when i take them out i'm going to do everything i can to do it as humanely as possible and then when i consume that animal there'll be no waste because i'll know that i've personally been responsible for that life so i'm f- responsible for what's on the other end of it not everybody can do it emotionally but please understand that you may think it's not possible but the longer we have these animals and the more I realize that some of them have this purpose, the more comfortable I am with the eventuality of doing it. Because this is something I haven't done for a while. grew up as a kid and you just did it without thinking. And as an adult, you think a little bit more about things, especially if you take a break from it in between, which I did. Um, so understand, too, if you're getting animals that are going to have to be slaughtered, that you're taking that responsibility on. But also don't let it turn you off. If you're willing to eat them, if you just have a problem with the slaughter and the butcher. Start looking around and seeing if you can find somebody locally that will take care of it for you. A lot of times people will do it in low prices, three bucks an animal or something. And I'll tell you this, like, I'm not going to raise a hundred chickens, but if I was going to raise a hundred chickens a year, uh, for me. I would probably pay somebody to do it just because my time's more valuable than the cost of having a professional do it for me. Uh, with small volume, maybe a dozen a year or something like that, my long-term plan, uh, you know, maybe two dozen a year so I can take two, two, two a month, two meals a month, uh, from chickens off my property. I'll do it as needed on my own. Uh, one more thing that's not directly related to the question, but this is why I don't like hybrid, um, uh, poultry. Uh, the 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 rock crosses that have to be slaughtered at you know somewhere between 38 and 42 days because basically at that point they're looking at you like please kill me. Um, I I don't like those animals because I don't like the life that they end up with for the last few days of their life as they're just having trouble breathing and they break their legs break and things. Uh, the red rangers take a lot longer to grow but they're still kind of that. Hybrid, larger breast variety. I think it averaged 60 days. That's a much better choice. But I still don't like them because they even get to a point where it's like, it's kind of like you gotta do it. I like using a dual purpose bird. I know I'm gonna get less meat, lower feed conversion, and things like that. But I know that I don't have to, if I'm gonna slaughter 12 birds this year, do them all today. Um, they can go another week and be just fine, and I can take two today if that's all the time that I have to do the work on uh, today. So that's something else to consider just putting that out there as part of this question. Now, it's almost like you're a second caller. Um, as far as – I'm going to do this really short because it's a very complicated question. But as far as the people behind controlling the stock market itself are concerned – I don't think it has a damn thing to do with the pricing in the market. The market is driven by the market, by supply and demand, and by purchasing. And what's elevated the stock market is a continuous infusion uh known as QE infinity by the federal reserve of constantly infusing capital into the market that capital ends up searching for a home with interest rates artificially low which is also being controlled by the fed some of that capital has to be forced into the banks the banks are actually buying stocks they're only you know they're, they I know you don't think they are but they are there's ways that they can do it and they're also loaning money so that stocks can be purchased okay that's another way that this 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 uh this this happens and I it's what I said months ago when I came out with a video that said QE three slash infinity will work and here's how and everybody said you're an idiot you don't know what you're talking about no it won't. And I said it's not good long term. It eventually leads to catastrophe, but it will have this effect on the market. And it has and it's it's continuing to do so. The the market right now is at fourteen eight uh, which I believe is an all time high I don't think the market's ever been at fourteen eight before I think the previous all time high was somewhere i don't know in like the fourteen range right around fourteen thousand or so um, you're 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 seeing the promised boom in the economy that I've promised you uh, the, it, what I call the the, the, the the final false recovery and they' I think it's a long-term one. I think it's a long-term boom cycle, maybe a, a dual cycle with some kind of correction in the middle. I mean, five years or more or ten years or more of overall uh things are wonderful. As the cancer eats away the patient from the inside, um, you're seeing a lot of things. Cheap energy, uh, exploitation of energy, optimism that America is going to have tons and gobs and gobs and gobs of cheap energy. You know, people say, well, Obama's against energy, and yeah, kind of, uh, with coal. But let's put the tinfoil hat on for just a second. Shall we hear at the end of today's show? If you wanted natural gas to boom and, in fact, if you wanted oil to boom and you wanted those two sectors to boom and you still wanted to look like you were environmentally conscious, why not obstruct part of the Keystone pipeline and put the k on coal while allowing oil to be pumped like never before and having a media that would just say, we're not going to talk about that because it's he's still holding it up here and here and here, right? And then allowing natural gas to be pumped like never before. And let industry also use all of this new technology with fracking and stuff and, and say, yeah, we think it's bad, but it's the best we have. And it even gets leaked into Hollywood things like, oh, Last Man Standing with Tim Allen. Do you know his wife in that show is a geologist? And the daughter came found out how bad fracking was and went on a strike and stayed on a tent out in the Denver cold at night. And they turned the sprinklers on. And in the end, that was the, the message from Hollywood. That fracking was bad, but it's the best we could do. If you put the k-bosh on coal, don't you pave the way for natural gas? Think about that. So this energy boom is going to happen, and 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 you're gonna you're gonna hear it called you're gonna call it's going to be called American energy independence. And they're going to tell the people that we're on a path to it, and eventually you're going to say we're there. And the the caveat will be Mitt, Mitt Romney leaked it during the debates. It's almost like there's like enough honesty in his his shifty little ass that it came out. You know, he said American energy independence, North American energy independence, just like that in one of the debates, because that's what it really is. Because it still involves a crap ton of energy from Mexico and Canada, but it's going to be sold to. And then the optimism returns. And remember, what gives the money value. What gives the money value is the confidence in the money. So as the confidence returns, and people begin to borrow and spend again, and then velocity of money starts to push inflation. Inflation starts to drive recovery, believe it or not. Gee, somebody told you that years ago. And eventually, there's a very sad end to all of this. But there is this cycle coming. You can see it. You can feel it. Even housing sales are recovering. Oh, by the way, we sold our house in Arkansas. Took one month to sell our house in Arkansas, a mobile home, which we were told by multiple agents that we did not hire. <laughs> you can't do that right now. It's hard to get financing on them. Mo- yeah, we don't need you, but I could get you a, oh, no, goodbye, goodbye, go out. Um, took us one month to sell our house. And that's indicative of a recovering housing market. It's also indicative of our housing marketing strategy. We always make our house 5% better than everything else in the price point. That's, that's how you sell a house in any market. But the housing markets are recovering. Why? Because they haven't been building them. So as people are looking to buy houses now, there's the inventory's not there. Right, And a lot of the existing inventory can't be sold because the house is still underwater. So the houses that are available are starting to drive the price back up and financing. This is coming. And you can lose the, the real conspiracy theories of, well, the market's going up because there's a new entity behind controlling the market. That That's not why the market's going up. The market's going up because there's huge liquidity being pushed into the market. And if you push lots of liquidity into the market, whether it should or shouldn't, the market will rise, and and, and that's what's going on here. And just as some crazy nut in a Jetta told you back in 2008, before the crash, that predicted the recovery after the crash, when everybody said after the crash it was over, right? That when this whole dynamic got set up, companies would be reporting all time high profits. And many companies are doing just that today. And it, that that cycle will continue. The problem is unemployment won't fall as fast as the market and the recovery would indicate because some crazy nut in a Jetta told you long ago. The problem is a lot of the jobs that were eliminated by these companies are now what's letting them make all-time high profits. And the jobs didn't go overseas The people weren't really laid off, even though they called it that so they could collect unemployment for 99 weeks. The jobs are gone. They're gone. The companies realized that through the 90s and the 2000s and those booms, they flat out overhired. They flat out hired people that weren't necessary. And when the day of reckoning came with the financial crisis, companies that were going to still make a profit and stay in business... This is what they did. They looked at their headcount, whether it was 50 people, 100 people, or 10,000 employees, and said, tell me, and the managing managers said, tell me every person in my department, and CEO said, tell me, all the managers, tell me everybody in my company, that if they weren't here tomorrow, everything would still go. We wouldn't stop functioning. And there was a lot of people that got laid off that really did get hurt that were good people. There were also a lot of people that got laid off. They were holding a desk down or holding a wall up and they weren't really necessary for the company to function. They're hiring back the kinds of people that they had to sacrifice, but the people that were desk jockeys that didn't really need to be there that everybody's going, why did we ever have a director of or why did we ever have four people that were in a department of? They're not going to hire those people again for a very, if ever for a very long time. The other side of this recovery, the optimism that if it wasn't for the underlying debt cancer of the nation, the unfunded liabilities, all of the fakeness of the economy could actually fix the problem long term will help with this recovery innovation. The only way that unemployment's really gonna go down is new industries. And not just the ass clown saying, we'll, we'll have green jobs changing light bulbs. Like, you know, that's a great job to have the light bulb changer. We have those. They're called janitors. It doesn't matter if it's a green light bulb or a non-green light bulb. You change it the same way. Uh, you know, really. So anyway, um, it's going to be true new innovations in industry that are going to drive the recovery because they'll, they'll create demand for jobs. And we do have a huge retiring baby boomer population, but there's a lag there. Because they can't afford to retire. As more and more of them retire, eventually companies will have to start hiring people that are, you know, that have to be trained into the industry. Right now, there's plenty of jobs. The problem is that they want people with experience, and a lot of people say, "Well, I have lots of experience." They're like, "Well, when'd you get laid off?" "2009, uh, uh, dude." It's 2013. That means you haven't worked in four years. Well, I've been looking, and I haven't found a job. You haven't found anything in four years. And I know it seems unfair to you, but let me tell you as an employer how I look at it. Four years, you couldn't find nothing? Next. Sorry. I, I, d- now, if you come in and go, I couldn't find anything in my in my my space, okay? Um, but I've been working three different part-time jobs, and I've been doing this, and hell, I've even delivered pizzas. Let's talk. Let's talk. Because you're a hardworking person that's been doing everything you can that just couldn't find a job like the one I'm interviewing you for. Let's talk. But if you've done nothing for three or four years, you've had no job at all, and you say, well, I had to keep my unemployment. Next! Right? I'm sorry. Next! That's it. Well, it's not fair. I don't care if it's not fair. Do you know why I'm going to do that with you? Because I I have a line of 20 people applying for this job. When six years ago, when I, when I needed to hire for this same job, I had two, maybe three people if I was lucky to pick from that were really qualified to do the job. Now I've got 20. So if I've got 20 people that are qualified to do the job and you're sitting in front of me and you haven't worked for three years, next! And that's the whole dynamic. I know that was long, especially at the end, and it's not really exactly what was asked. But it's the only way to actually answer what's going on out there. Jobs are jobs are being created uh, position as companies go into recovery. They want to compete again. They want to grow again. They're hiring, but they're not hiring college graduates. They're hiring experienced people, and they're hiring people that are short-term looking for employment, and they're hiring really good people who lost really good jobs but took anything they could get and scraped by in the interim and are now looking to move back up. Those are hungry people in the eyes of the employer. And the person that wrote 99 weeks of unemployment, don't email me being pissed. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with you. I'm not saying you're a bad person. I'm telling you the hiring entities, the hiring managers, the hiring executives, when that waiting room has 15 people in it for interviews today for three positions... I'm cherry-picking, baby. I'm not just getting the best qualified. I'm getting the best qualified, hardest-working, most desperate son of a gun who's fought tooth and nail through this recession because I want that hungry-ass, hard-working son of a bitch in my business. And I have the ability to do that because there's so damn many of them. That number will have to dry up down to four or five people before the people that haven't worked for two years or more... Start getting the nod for positions that are competitive. That's just reality. So, if you're one of those people, call up Papa John's and start delivering pizzas and fib a little bit about how long you've been doing it. When it comes, and take anything related to your field, no matter what it pays, because if you want to compete for these new things that are coming out, that's what they're going to be looking for. Stock market going up? Yes. Why? Tons of false liquidity pushed into the market. doesn't matter who's controlling the back end. The market functions because of supply and demand, and the demand is up because the ability to purchase is up, because the liquidity is there, because the Fed farted liquidity out of thin air by creating money that doesn't really exist. With that, this has been Jack Speargo with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life times get tough, or even if they don't.
0: Everybody up there cares.